Well, brothers and sisters, it's great to spend time with you this weekend. My name is Pastor Matt, and I'm going to be finishing off our part 10 of our Daring to be Different series in the book of Daniel. And if you're a guest here, I just want to warn you right now that everything we're going to do today is not how we normally do it at Bridgeway. It's never going to be this complicated or this deep or this confusing as what I'm going to be covering this weekend. So just if this is your first time, please come back and here are other pastors working with other passages because what we're gonna do is very complicated. And so we're gonna be going through the last three chapters of the book of Daniel. And this is really Daniel talking about the future of the kingdoms. And if you have your, your uh, bulletin there, if you're doing everything online, you'll see a fill in the blank. And this is what I want you to write down. This world will never be our true home. This world will never be our true home. I mean, you're going to see that these texts are going to take us into the eternity ahead. And what an exploration that we've been doing these last nine weeks in the book of Daniel, learning what it means to dare to be different and being reminded of what it looks like to live distinctively in all the right ways, that we are called to make a difference, that our Christian identity is supposed to stand out where it's impossible for the world to ignore our love in action. And, and to, for people to see our identity in all the right ways. And we watched in the first six chapters of Daniel, um, Daniel and the three, strangers in a strange land, living in unexpected ways, reminding themselves who they belong to. Not the king of Babylon, not the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. They belong to Yahweh. They belong to God. And they can be a voice and a presence of transformation. And they stayed close to their God. And they realized that their God had a plan for all the nations and all the empires and not just Israel. And they were reminded that he works in the greatest crises and that he is above all human empires and human leaders. And so the last three weeks, Pastor Lance and Pastor Paul have been wandering us through these visions in chapters 7, 8, and 9. And I need to remind you of a couple quick things about that as we walk into chapters 10 to 12 this weekend. And, and so the first thing is, is you have to recognize that the book of Daniel is considered apocalyptic literature. Now, I don't have time to go into that in depth, and so we're going to put our notes online because I covered it last night, but it took a long time. But apocalyptic literature is intended, in essence, to interpret the present earthly events in light of the supernatural world and of the future. But more importantly, it's meant to influence the understanding and behavior of the audience. It's supposed to change how you live, where you are, and the situations you're in. It gives you a way to process experience. And the last six chapters of Daniel is apocalyptic literature. It's the only apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation in the New Testament is apocalyptic literature. And so you can go and understand a little bit more about that, but some vital pieces, three things I definitely want you to hear, is that apocalyptic literature concerns not just future and opinions about what the future might be. It concerns past, present, and future. And it's going to zoom in and out, and it's going to repeat themes over and over again, and it's going to use a sharp dualism where it's going to contrast the present age that's dominated by evil, which will feel like all the time, and a future age of change that will come in the complete kingdom of God. And so the book of Daniel is apocalyptic literature, and it's also prophetic literature. And one of the challenges you have when you're dealing with prophetic literature is that things are fulfilled, but they're not always completely fulfilled. So something is said, and you'll see it come to play, but only partially. And there's still pieces left. And that becomes challenging, because then you have to decide as a reader and as a, as a community of faith, has this fully come to play, or is there more still to come? And that makes it challenging, especially in the texts that we're working with. And so... 
As we're reading all these visions, we can't separate them from the larger book, though, from the stories we have of Daniel in chapters 1 to 6, because those show how to live distinctively in dangerous times when it seems like God is not in control. And all these visions of the future are going to bring up the same issues, but not with Daniel and the three. But you're going to see that in the same way, God delivers and God strengthens through the danger, not just from the danger. And so we're going to see that happen. And so we have to review a little bit about what was covered in chapters 7, 8, and the last part of 9, verses 24 to 27, because they all tie into what we're talking about today. And so one of the things about all these chapters is they all have to do with this art of knowing ancient Near Eastern history, which some of us are like, yes, I love studying history. And the rest of us are like, you already lost me because I suck at history and I don't want to deal with it more. But the way you understand and navigate through these visions is you have to engage with ancient Near Eastern history. You also have to just give Daniel a break because Daniel gets these visions over multiple decades and there have a lot of similarities and overlap. And so you have to imagine Daniel trying to go back and sit down and, and still with the work of the spirit, trying to write things out and go, was that the first vision or was that the second vision during the reign of Belshazzar? Is this Darius? And trying to put it all down. So give Daniel a break and also give anyone that preaches on it a break. Okay. Because it's very complicated. So I like what Lance said when he was talking about chapter seven, because he said it really well. The stories in the first six chapters are about what it looks like when God is in charge. The visions of the future in the last six chapters are about how God is in charge of what's to come, that God's plan is playing out and it will come to pass. And so in chapter seven, Lance talked about different beasts that were going to come and these horns and that there was these two groups of 10 horns and they're, they're representing certain empires and that they're going to eventually rise to one horn that's going to rise up and it's going to be an evil leader that's going to leave this impact Right? And a lot of people tend to understand it as an antichrist. And, and, and Lance kind of introduced us to having to wrestle with this, are these passages literal or are they figurative? And what's hard is that it's hard to make those delineations. However, the more you read, the more you study, you start seeing patterns emerge. And we see that God does tend to speak in humanity in similar ways so that we can understand. For Daniel, he was speaking in language that had to do with the ancient Near Eastern culture. So there were things that Daniel would have heard and he would have went, yes, yes, I understand. And yet you'll find as he's receiving them, he is still stumped. He didn't know things until it was actually described to him by an angel. But we have the ability to not only look at what these visions were, but we get to see the other visions in the Old Testament. We get to see the teachings of Jesus Christ and we get to see the final revelation, the final apocalyptic literature that comes in the scripture. And so we can see this pattern and promise that there is hope still to come. And so chapter seven is this rehash of a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter two, but then you move into chapter eight and it's a whole nether vision that repeats a lot of the same things. And, and twice God has revealed to Daniel that there are coming earthly empires. And, and Lance talked a little bit about those, how there's a two-horned ram and a floating unicorn goat, and they're violently clashing, and this is the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire, and the unicorn horn breaks, and four more horns rise up, and one gets really bigger. Really bigger, that's not a word. One really giant grows, right? Now I'm speaking in other languages. And, and, and so this grows, and Lance talked about how a lot of people look at this as possibly Antiochus IV, Epiphanes IV, or a potentially future Antichrist. 
Well, that takes us into chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, that Paul just briefly kind of went over last weekend. And he was talking about how in Daniel's confessional prayer, he's searching for revelation on the matter of the return of Israel from exile in Babylon. That Jeremiah had given a prophecy that after 70 years they would return. And, and God gives Daniel what he needed some details on the timing of the return and the restoration. But you're going to see it's not very clear, and we're going to walk through it. But three things Paul asserted that I really valued. He said, God is not done with Israel. He's not letting go. It is going to get messy and get messier, and it's going to go longer, way past Daniel. And Daniel needed to hear that, and it's all going to come back to belonging to God, to trusting God, which we're going to talk about a lot this weekend. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, because Paul only briefly walked through it, and we need to go through it again in order to walk in to chapters 10 to 12. But you're going to see that it's going to say, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. And so first, it's going to remind them that this is about the people and the holy city. This is not yet worldwide perspective. This is talking specifically about the people of Israel. And then it's going to talk about 70 weeks, or 70 sevens is how it actually is translated in the Hebrew. And that's a period of 490 years that for us, we go, why is it being so specific? But in the ancient world, that was how people broke up periods of time. Not just the Jewish people, the Greeks, the Persians, and even later in Jewish history, you would have the Qumran community, and even in um, some later commentaries called the Peshittas, they would have these 490 blocks. So for them, they heard it as a period of time, right? For a period of time. And Daniel has been dealing with these time periods and trying to wrestle with them. And as a reader, you're left to have to fi figure out a lane that you're gonna go down as you read these types of things. And Paul talked briefly about this, and I think it's worth talking about again, because there's really three lanes to read a passage like this. One is elusively. Elusively has to do with connecting to other passages, that what you're reading is alluding to other pieces. And a lot of people look at this passage as alluding to the 70 years of punishment that Israel was going through for their sin. And that that's connected or alludes to Leviticus chapter 26 that talks about a Sabbath plan, a jubilee plan, that when Israel screws up and they break the covenant, they'll go through a period, but it's, it's a set period that's meant to change them. And it's going to happen in this sevenfold way. And because Daniel was dealing with the prophecy of Jeremiah, they believe that that illusion is there. And it gets picked up in another book, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 18 to 21, where when it talks about the exile and Jeremiah's prophecy, it says, this is to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So it makes that connection. And so a lot of people elusively look at this passage and they say, this is simply a way of speaking about a present age of toil and trouble that is refining Israel for what they've done. And it's going to be followed by, by the era of a kingdom of God. Now, that's one lane. Another lane, kind of the slow person lane. No, I'm just kidding, right? Another lane is the, the chronological lane. And this is where people read and they hear the numbers and they take everything in prophetic and ap apocalyptic work as a historical timeline. 
that you're trying to actually match up dates to historical pieces we have. The hard part about that is people are very arbitrary on what dates they start with and what dates they end, and it doesn't always perfectly fit, and they try to force dates into things. Like if you were to go on, and I did do this, and you try to Google, use Rabbi Google, to look up a YouTube of people talking about Daniel's chapters 10 to 12, almost all of the ones you read or listen to are gonna have to do with a chronological timeline. And the hard part is, is it tends to be very messy and very dangerous because people will predict things that then don't happen and they'll line things up. And, and really, for, the, for instance, in the passage, it's gonna talk about from the, dec the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of an anointed, right? And so when you're dealing with dates on a chronological timeline, you have to say, okay, the decree of the return to Jerusalem. Well, is that from Jeremiah's prophecy in 605? Or is that from Cyrus's um, accession in 556? Or is it from Cyrus's decree in 539? Or is it from Darius's decree in 521? Or is it from Artaxerxes' decree in 4, 458? Right? People pick them and then they try to do the math and then they totally forget that they had different calendars in the ancient world and they try to put it together. And, and so it tends to be a dangerous lane. Then a third lane, and Pastor Paul talked about this, is the chronographical. And this is where you use a stylized pattern of history to interpret historical data rather than having history and timelines arise from the data. Where you're taking a way of looking at history and going, I see the pieces, but it's about what all the pieces are trying to tell me rather than about how long and when those things are exactly going to happen. And so it makes it more of a commentary on Jeremiah's prophecy to make it understandable and useful and relevant, not just to the people in Daniel's time, but to the people across all time. But then it told, told us certain things that should happen with the 77s. And if you notice, the first three are dealing with the fact that God has forgiveness over the sin of humanity. And that's a huge promise. That's a huge blessing that God can finish transgression and put an end to sin and atone for iniquity. Those are all new covenant themes that by the blood and the activity of God, we can be saved. And part of this is a response to Daniel's confession of sin. And then he's gonna say, you're gonna seal up the vision and the prophet. And that's not seal up like pack away that we do at Christmas with all of our stuff and put it in bins in the garage. To seal it means to authenticate it. You are going to authenticate Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 years and you are gonna show a fulfillment to it. And then it says he's going to anoint a most holy place. And that's talking about the temple. There's an anointing of a most holy place that's gonna happen. But this is where the literature gets complicated because is that the temple that's built in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah? Or is that Herod's temple? Or is that a future temple that's gonna be built, right? And so you don't know. It doesn't give us clarity on that. But it's all together showing us that God's gonna cleanse and renew Israel. And then it goes on in verses 25 and 26 and it talks more about those 70 weeks. And you have to, again, pick some lanes, are you gonna pick a lane that has to do only with the Christology, the Christ-centered pieces of it? Or are you gonna pick a lane that's dealing with the history of it? And a lot of us in the church, we go, well, of course you're gonna pick the Christological, the Jesus-centered lane. Everything's about Jesus. And I agree with you. Except that what happens is people, in order to make that fit, they take those little toys where you have a square block and a circle hole and they try to shove it through in order to make it apply. And so is this talking about Jesus? It's not perfectly clear. And so even every time people ask me, I always say yes and no, and I don't know. 
I say all three because I do believe there's some pieces, but it's going to tell us that from the going out of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed, and that term doesn't say anointed one like it's in our English Bibles. It just says to an anointed. It tends to talk about a priest, but then it will call them a nagid, an anointed prince-elect, right? So a prince-elect is this holy leader, this holy ruler, and now you have to go, is that talking about Jesus? Or is this talking about Zerubbabel and Joshua from the book of Ezra that are going to come and start the return of Israel and the rebuilding of the temple? We don't know. But it says in that time, that will take 62 weeks and Jerusalem shall be built again, but in a troubled time. And then after 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. And that term cut off is a term that carries the idea of a death of a sacrificial victim someone that's exterminated. And so again, you read that and you go, if it's Jesus, that makes sense. It's the cross and it's what... The hard part is, is that in the Maccabean period, there's also a priest named Onias III who is a holy ruler, a priestly ruler that gets cut off. He gets assassinated and killed. And so people go, well, it could be both. And you're like, you're confusing me. And I'm like, yes, I am because I'm confused. But then in verse 26, the last part, it shifts forward in time. And it talks about how a different host of a different prince will come and destroy the city and the temple. And again, we don't know exactly what period they're talking about. Is that the Roman conquering that's going to happen? Is that um, Antiochus IV? Is that a future Antichrist? But it, just tells, it does tell us that it's going to come as a cataclysm. It's going to be flood and war and desolations are decreed. And in verse 27, it tells us that in the final seven... This ruler will make a strong covenant with many, a holy covenant or an alliance. And for half a week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And, and it will say, on the, on the wing of the abomination shall come one who makes desolate. Now, Pastor Lance talked about this in chapter 8. And a lot of people read this and they say, this is specifically Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And the reason why most people come to that conclusion, like the majority of scholars, is because you have an extra biblical book, a book that's not in our Bible, called the book of Maccabees. And in 1 Maccabees 154, it says that this passage is specifically about Antiochus Epiphanes. And that's awesome that you have a book saying, this is what the passage is about. But then you have to wrestle with, were they right? Because the book of Maccabees is not included in the primary canon of scripture. If you've been to a Catholic church, it's included in the Apocrypha, which is considered a valuable book, but they don't know if it's spirit-inspired. So then you go, okay, well, they're tracking a lot of history, and they're saying that this is what it's about. But is it? And what's hard about that is in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus is going to give a discourse called the Olivet Discourse, where he's going to talk about this same passage and that there's going to be an abomination that causes desolation. And he's saying that almost 200 years after Antiochus Epiphanes. So who's right? Maccabees? Jesus? Both? Confusion. Altogether, there's the chance that there's a dual fulfillment, a multiple fulfillment, but all of them, chapter 8, chapter 11, and you're going to see in chapter 12, they're all going to say the same thing about this decree that the, 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 until the decreed end is poured out on the one desolating. Or in Daniel 8, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. And in Daniel 11, he shall come to his end with none to help him. In the end, whoever this is, they're beat. They're destroyed. 
they do not have the final power. And so all of this keeps with Daniel's message that the people that stand up, all these rulers and evil empires that stand up against God, although they look like they have victory and control, they will be broken by God and his kingdom will remain. And God will finally and totally confront any beast, any empire, any ruler and finalize his rescue of the world. Are you confused yet? Now let's get into the text we're working with. Chapters 10 to 11. Fortunately, chapter 10 is going to give us some brief encouragements. So try to keep up. Chapter 10, verse 1. And I just want to highlight, I have to. Every pastor during this series has only had to do one chapter. I have to do three chapters, and they're some of the most complicated visions. So, Lord have mercy. So, chapter 10, verse 1 is a true word or vision about a great conflict, and it's gonna assert to us twice that Daniel understood it. You're gonna notice I'm not gonna read all of the passages because that would take 30 minutes in itself. Daniel has this isolated angelic encounter where he learns about this great conflict and he understands a little bit about it. And it's gonna tell us in verses two to four that he was in that posture of mourning during that prayer time for three weeks. He's standing at the Tigris River, one of the rivers in Babylon, And one of the things that's gonna happen is he's gonna suddenly um, have this isolated angelic encounter and he's gonna see a man in verse five clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold, um, a body and face that's shining and he's gonna get all these illuminating descriptions of this man that's about to speak to him. It's gonna talk about his face being like barrel and he's gonna be like lightning and flaming torches and burnished bronze and that when his, when his voice speaks, it's gonna sound like the sound of a multitude. Like if you were at a sports game and somebody scored and the whole entire stadium cheers, that's what his voice sounds like. And he's gonna hear all this and these are all descriptions that are used in chapter seven for the Ancient of Days but also across all these other prophecies in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter six, when he encounters the presence of God, Ezekiel chapters one and nine, as, they, as he encounters the presence of God, and in John chapter one in the book of Revelation, when he encounters the risen Jesus Christ, it's gonna have these same types of descriptions. And, and in this passage, it never gives a name like it's done in other passages to say that this was an angel. And so this encounter has this impact on Daniel And in verses 10 to 21, the words and the touch of this man leave Daniel trembling. In verse 15, it will say, he turned his face to the ground and was mute, which is what I want to be right now. (laughs) Verse 11, though, is some of the first words that are given. It says, man greatly loved, understand the words I speak to you. Stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. Fear not, from the start your words were heard of his prayer. And I have come because of your words. The prince of Persia withstood me 21 days while you were fasting. But the chief prince Michael came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia or the king of Persia. So this angel gives him some encouragement, but then he tells him that there's something happening on a whole nother level. And this passage is one of those reminders that history is not the outworking of human decisions alone. Although it looks like humans are controlling all the purposes, there are things happening in the realm of the spirit behind it. And this isn't the only passage that scripture addresses this. If you look at Colossians chapter one, verses 16 to 20, you don't have to turn there. It's gonna reaffirm to us that all power in its visible and invisible aspects was created by God and exists for God. Now I could do a whole sermon just on this part, but we're not. But we just need to be reminded that there's a spiritual realm that's also fighting and warring. But look at verse 14, let's go back to our text. 
this man says, I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. And he's going to use that word understand again. That word understand is repeated nine times in chapters nine, the last part of chapter nine, 10, and 11. And then he's also going to talk about showing him the truth, the book of truth. And all of this is about having Daniel perceive and distinguish and notice something that's before him. But it's going to be specifically about what's happening to Daniel's people. Well, that's Israel. Well, that becomes hard because we're Christians that are not Jewish. And so how does this relate to us? And it's in the, in the book of Romans in the New Testament that Paul's going to write a whole chapter, Romans chapter 11, where he's going to talk about how Israel is a branch. But by the work of Jesus Christ, the Gentiles, everyone that's non-Jewish, non-Israelite, have been engrafted into the branch so that the church and the Israelites are together in the saving by grace, right? And so that's a, that's a pretty powerful piece that Paul talks about. Is that happening here? And he tells him he's going to give him understanding about the latter days, the days yet to come. Now, most of us, when we hear that term, we think that's the final end times, the end of the world. The problem is, is that's not really how this word is translated. It actually has to do with that which comes after. So when he's talking to Daniel, he's saying, I'm going to show you that which comes after you and your people of Israel right now, how history is going to come to its outcome. I'm not yet telling you the final end, although he'll start using language about that a little bit later. So he touches Daniel and Daniel starts speaking and he says, by reason of the vision, Pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? And look at verse 19, because I think this is an encouraging message that we need to hear amidst all of that I'm talking about today. He says, man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. That's pretty significant. That that's what he wants him to hear. One, you are greatly loved. No matter what is going on back in history, back in the worst empires, whatever's going on now in your life, you are greatly loved. Don't fear. May peace be with you. Shalom alek. Be strong and have courage. And then in verse 20, he say, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the Persian prince. And when I go out, behold, the Grecian prince will come. Verse 21 but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except Michael, your prince. And so before we move on to chapter 11, which is going to get even more confusing, because this is, remember, the encouraging part. Chapter 12 is too. We have to talk about who is this man that's speaking to Daniel. Because it never clarifies or qualifies it as an angel. Instead, we get this illuminating appearance and description and I confidently believe that this brilliantly shining God-man is Jesus. In verse 16, it says that he's one in the likeness of the children of men. And in verse 18, he's one having the appearance of a man, which is the same way it was said in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And like I mentioned to you in Revelation chapter 1, that is the description that John gets of a description of Jesus and the authority that Jesus has as resurrected Lord. And if you go to Revelation chapter 5, that is a description of, in chapter four of God seated on his throne with all these illuminating terms and then the lamb standing upon the throne with its throat looking as if it had been slit. And he's standing there and he is the one that is worthy to open the scrolls that's gonna usher in how the final end will go. 
I absolutely believe that this is Jesus. And, and I believe it also because of that reminder and the encouragement it gave him, that you are greatly loved. I don't think an angel speaks just like that. Yes, he can be a messenger, but I think this is Jesus reminding him of that truth. And that needed to be restated and reset for Daniel. And it needs to be restated for us. Now, I know there's some of you that are wrestling with, but why did Jesus need the help of Michael in order to fight the Prince of Persia, right? Now, number one, stop thinking logically because we look at it and we go, if Jesus needs Michael, he's not strong enough. That is not what's going on. Jesus can call his angelic host to help him for any reason, and it's not because he lacks power. It's because he wants to involve them in what's going on. But let's spend another day to talk about that. Let's go into chapter 11. Chapter 11 is going to take up these motifs from chapter 7 and chapter 8 and the end of 9. And these chapters are going to have, this chapter 11 is going to have the most detailed points of contact with chapter 8. And you're going to ask yourself, why are we reviewing this again? And it's because there's something more that God wants Daniel to understand and see. He wants him to be reminded, and I think we need to be reminded of this, that things will continue worldwide to get national and political. You're always going to have power and conflicts and alliances and intermarriages, and those are all built into history. You don't have to go watch a crude show like Game of Thrones to see this. Just study history, and you'll see it play out. And so you're going to see within this that he's going to remind them that they can stand within this, and you can have strength, and that you will see that even when there's bad rulers, they will fall. And you're going to find that he's going to compress for Daniel a significant stretch of Persian and Greek history into a small space. But it's not just about the when, it's about the what. And so one of the things I'm going to do, thanks to technology, is we're going to actually put up on the screen a map, because that's going to help us to understand a lot of these pieces. So I'm not going to read every line, but we're going to walk through some of Daniel chapter 11 and seeing the map is how you're going to understand it. So in chapter 11, verse two, it's going to talk about how there's four kings in Persia and there's a fourth who's strong in his riches, right? So the Persian empire is right over in this area, right? Is the map up there? No, did we lose it? Wait, wait for it. And now, now, later, maybe it's not going to work. Yay. Okay. So the Persian empire is right here. And so it's going to tell us about three kings and then a fourth king, Do a little crown here for you, a fourth king that's going to come in and he's going to stir up against the kingdom of Greece, right? So he's going to come and he's going to do that. And it's going to give you 200 years of Persian history in one verse. And it's not perfect history because there's more than four kings in the Persian empire, but it's trying to relay certain elements. Then it says in verses three to four that a mighty king shall arise and he will rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he's arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, not according to the authority which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. And so what's gonna happen is you're gonna have a guy named Alexander the Average, and he's gonna make his way and he's gonna conquer the entire Persian Medo Empire, okay? That's a lot right? Because it goes all the way to India, all the way down into Central Africa, and all the way us up, almost all the way to Rome. So now I got to get rid of all this and show you the next piece. Okay. So what's going to happen is 
it tells us that it's going to be divided to four different kingdoms. Well, what's going to happen is when Alexander the Average dies, it's going to be split into four kingdoms. And in those kingdoms, you're going to have first the Ptolemaic kingdom, second, the Seleucid Empire, third, the Macedonian Empire or the Lydian Empire, and fourth, the Thrace and Macedonia. And those are all going to be generals of Alexander that they're going to be the ones that are in control of all of this. Now, we're tracking still with history that lines up with what Daniel is hearing. So Daniel is going to get this bearing of how Israel as a land with the temple and the wise is going to be in the center of this chaotic coming and going for quite some time. Because we're going to be reading most of chapter 11 in this Greek Hellenistic context. And you're going to see that for the Syrians and for the Ptolemaic, sorry, the Seleucids and the Ptolemaic, they're constantly going to be going back and forth through Israel. So now I had to erase some things again. And now let's keep going. Okay. So now moving on to verse five, it's going to tell us there's a strong prince of the South with great authority, and he's going to ally and make agreement with the king of the North. So you have a king of the South, king of the North, and he's going to go and make an alliance, and they're going to give their daughters and sons together. And you're going to see that these two realms lie on either side of Israel and contain um, the movements of what's going to happen in Israel. And it's going to say, in the south, a branch from her root shall arise, and this offspring, this prince of the south, will go and conquer the fortress of the north, in verse 7. He's going to carry off to Egypt their gods, in verse 8. The, the northern kingdom's going to try to come down and do a raid, in verse 9. It's not going to work. And then you move into chapter, into verse 10. And now it's going to say, in verse 10, that the northern king and his sons are going to come down and they're going to assemble great forces and wage war and overflow and pass and carry as far as the fortress of the kings of Egypt. And this is reference to a guy named Antiochus III. He wants to capture this land that's in between them, the area where Israel is. Why is that so important? We'll talk about that another time, right? He gets in there and in rage in verse 11, it says the Southern King will come out to fight him, right? And he's gonna raise a great army and it's gonna be given into his hand. And it's gonna say when the Northern army is taken away, the Southern King's heart is exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. Now, this actually lines up very closely with a battle called the Battle of Rephaia in 217, which you don't have to know that name, but the most important piece is the northern kingdom loses, sorry, the southern kingdom loses, and you know why they lose? Because they only have 73 element, elephants, and the northern kingdom has 102. It all comes down to the elephants, right? So, okay, so are you confused yet? Darn it, I need to confuse you more. Let's keep going then. Right? So what happens is then you get into verses 13 to 15, and it says, the northern kingdom shall again raise a greater army and supplies and shall come on, and he will rise against the southern king and the violent among your own people, the people in Israel, are going to lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. The northern king shall come and siege and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand." Now, this is involving Israel now, because now there's factions breaking up in Israel that are either staying faithful to the covenant or they're joining the Hellenistic Greeks to go into battle. We'll get to that in a moment. 
Verses 16 to 17 says that the northern king will do as he will, and he will stand on the glorious land with destruction in his hand. That's not good. And he will come with the strength of his whole kingdom to the south. Now, if you were to look through more of the history, you're going to see that that's going to involve the story of Cleopatra and Ptolemy, and you're going to see that it's more history being interweaved. We're not going to talk about that. Verse 18 says that after that, he's going to turn towards the coastlands and capture, but then a commander will put an end to his insolence and turn it back on him. And so what had happened is Antiochus III, as he kept attacking, started waking, making his way up towards Macedonia and Thrace, and now the Romans in their early stages start getting involved. And so they beat him and they send him back. And he's gonna turn back to his land in verse 19 and stumble and fall and, be, and not be found, and another will arise, an exactor of tribute, for the kingdom's glory. Now I'm gonna go ahead and we can turn the map off for now because now we're gonna take a step back again. Now, verses 21 to 45 are gonna keep talking about some of this, but it's not fully clear if it's still sitting in this Greek Hellenistic period, right? But we're gonna see that it's still gonna crash into the elements of the faith of the people of God. So verses 21 to 24 tells us that a contemptible man, a person without majesty, so he has no royalty, is going to come into the kingdom with flattery. And this is where I need to teach you a Hebrew word that's just great, because I like teaching Hebrew words. But the Hebrew word for flattery is klakalaka, which is just a great word if you're trying to flatter someone, klakalaka. And you need to use that 10 times this week, right? So he comes in with klakalaka and he's going to build up his army and his kingdom and he's gonna sweep away armies before him and it's gonna say that he's even going to align with a prince of the covenant. Well, the people of the covenant is Israel, so he's gonna align with a ruler and a leader. Well, in this time period around Antiochus IV, there's a priest named Onias III in 172 that he's considered the ruler of Israel. Well, he's gonna ally with Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And so a lot of people look at that as a, as a clear connection. So Antiochus is gonna build these alliances and he's gonna grow things by deceit and he's gonna, he's gonna devise plans against strongholds. And then in verses 25 and 26, he's gonna stir up an army against the South who's gonna wage war against him and more klakalaka and betrayal and deceit and hearts bent on doing evil. And he's gonna work his will and return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. Now, look at verse 29. All of this, it's gonna give you a little stopping point and it's gonna say, this is at the time appointed. The end is yet to be at the time appointed. Where it's gonna like pause you within all this and go, I know you might think this is the end of the world, but it's not. There's still stuff to happen, and this is all falling into play. Then it will tell us that the northern king, Antiochus, will come against the southern kingdom, but this time ships of Katim will come, and he will withdraw, turn back, and because he's so furious, he'll be enraged at the people of the Holy Covenant. And within history, Antiochus came down, the Ptolemies combined with Rome, and the ships of Katim are all the Roman fleet. Come and get involved. They beat Antiochus. And there's a great passage about um, one, of the royal, um, one of the Roman generals. They, they trap Antiochus on the beach. And the whole aunt envoy puts a circle in the sand around him. And they say, you have to decide whether or not you're going to subjugate to Rome. And you cannot leave this circle until you make a decision. Talk about like frustrating someone. <laughs> You're like, what do I do? What do I do? And so he has to agree to pay tribute to Rome and to give up, which is why he goes and turns against 
the people of the Holy Covenant. And all of this is referenced in 1 Maccabees 1 and 2 Maccabees 5. So now you get into verse 31. This is where it starts going against the people of faith. It says, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Oh, sound familiar? So Antiochus will go in, he'll remove the sacred items of the temple, he'll rifle through the sanctuary and he'll stop the sacrifice to God. He'll repurpose the whole temple to Zeus, Olympias. And he even, some people believe, constructed a statue of Zeus inside the holy place. That's pretty messed up. Now, we look at that and we go, yeah, it's so horrible that these people are coming in and doing this and that's what the Antichrist might do. Well, even within Israel's own history, in the 700s, there was a king named Ahaz who did the same thing and desolated the temple. And in the 600s, there was a king named Manasseh who did the same thing. So even people of faith have desolated the temple but now you have external people coming and doing it. And so this becomes really bad, but it's about what it causes in the people that we have to see. Because verses 32 to 35 shows you this division that happens between those who know their God and those who are being klakalaka. So verse 32 says, he shall seduce with klakalaka those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And many shall join themselves to the king with klakalaka. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And so it's this assault on faith and religion that Antiochus and potentially an antichrist, an anti-messiah will also initiate. And the task of the people of God, both in Daniel's time, in this period, and in any time, is to stand firm and depend on the wise among the people for understanding and to persevere in the midst of persecution. Well, we're not done yet. If you look at 36 to 45, it's gonna zoom back and it's gonna focus more on the king and show you how bad he's gonna get. It tells us in verse 36, he's going to exalt and magnify himself two times above every God and above all gods, and he's going to speak astonishing things against the God of gods. Now, if this is Antiochus, he minted on his own coins the name Basileos and Takua Theo Epiphana. I am Antiochus, God manifest. That's how bold that guy was. How much more can future rulers try to declare that? And they have tried. In verse 37, it says, he'll pay no attention to his God or other gods, but will honor the God of the fortresses, perhaps all resources on war. And then you move into verse 40, and now it's gonna telescope back. And it's now gonna talk about stuff that it doesn't look like we're talking about the Greek empires anymore. And it's gonna say that in verse 40, a Southern king, and you're like, oh, here we go again. A Southern king will attack, but the Northern king will dominate like a whirlwind and he will come into other countries and overflow and pass through. And now you are dealing with, and it will use a term, the time of the end, ba'et ketz. These are final oracles that are speaking of a final invasion with an unspecific aggressor. And in verse 41, it says, he will come into the glorious land and myriad upon myriads will fall. And the news from the east and the north will alarm him and he'll go out with great fury to destroy. And in verse 45, he's gonna pitch his tents between the sea and the holy mountain. And the most likely place that he would pitch his tents to prepare for battle is at a mountain called Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo 
is right next to a valley called the Jezreel Valley that pretty much goes from the coast all the way to the Jordan River, and it's where all the major battles in Israel's history and from all the nations will be fought. We know it because when you take Armageddo in Hebrew and you put it into Greek, you get Armageddon. Armageddon. And so this is where it's talking about a battle that's going to happen in this place called Armageddon. And then abruptly, it tells us in verse 45, he shall come to his end. <laughs> it doesn't give you any more details. It just, he loses. Chapter 8 had said he will be broken, but by no human hand. Now, there's a couple things here that I want to highlight, and then we're going to close this with chapter 12. The first thing is, is that things get messy and messier, right? And this is, in a way, speaking to Daniel and others and saying that suffering is not always divine punishment as the exile was for Israel. The rulers of the nations who ignore God and are a lot of themselves and become beasts are gonna go and oppress others and that's just gonna be part of history. Like we have to be reminded that God was telling Daniel that there's gonna to continue to be bad people and bad nations and bad stuff's gonna happen. But you can stand through it. You can dare to be different within it. And so in the short term, Daniel is told that things will become worse and it's not that he saw the final end coming exactly, but he's reminded that in the end, the final judgment and the fulfillment of the kingdom is coming. And, and so this guy Antiochus Epiphanes, the passage can be talking about him, but it might be talking about him as a prototype to say, there's a guy that's gonna come that's gonna do some really bad stuff and that's gonna be a real piece of history, but guess what? There's gonna be other people that will come and do the same thing and in the end, there's gonna be a penultimate bad guy Antichrist in the far future that's going to do this. And all of this is going to bring us into the final end. Well, this is where chapter 12 gives us some more hope and encouragement. So go ahead and turn there with me. It becomes this continuation. It says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase." We're not, now chapter 12 brings you in and it gives you a heavenly side to all these earthly events, reminding them that even at the spiritual realm, God is fighting. Michael is still there. And they still belong to the people of God and God is still intervening. But it does warn that there will be a time of trouble such as never had been. Now, even Jesus in Matthew 24 is gonna say that there will be a great tribulation such as not had been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So even Jesus himself is going to grab onto that and go, no, that's true. But that's not what you're supposed to focus on. You're supposed to focus on the last part of verse one, that your people will be delivered. Everyone's name will be found, whose name will be found written in the book. And this is a reference to the book of life. Some will say the book of truth. And that wasn't just a New Testament thing that you find in Revelation. It comes up in Exodus 32 and in Psalm 69 and Isaiah 4.3 and in Malachi 3.16. But in Revelation 20, we know it the best because it tells us that all of the graves will be emptied and they will all be brought before the white throne of the Lord. And whoever's name is written in the book of life will go on to eternity. And whoever's name is not written goes on into eternal condemnation. 
And that's heavy. But when this book has been talking about understanding and wisdom and an unveiling, it's about knowing the one who writes the book of life. See, the book of Revelation and the apocalypse of Daniel, they're both talking about understanding who God is. It's not about you understanding all the history. It's not about you understanding all the numbers. It's about you having an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. That's what's being unveiled. It's where you stand with him whenever any of these things come. And it's meant to ask you and challenge you, do you understand God? Do you have a relationship with him? And if you don't, I encourage you that today is the day to come and talk with someone, to come and allow us to pray with you as you surrender your life to Jesus. And look what will happen. Verse two, the dead will awaken to everlasting life from the dust of the earth to everlasting life. And then it tells us a little more. The wise who turn many to righteousness shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever and ever. Where now it gives you even more reference of reward of what you're gonna experience. And it says you're gonna shine like the brightness of the sky above, that you will truly be this illuminated light on a hill that has been there to, to show people what it means to know Yahweh, to know Jesus. And that those, and I love this, those who turn many to righteousness are gonna have almost uh, an angelic-like character. It's not literal, but I mean, th think about that. What does it mean to turn someone to righteousness? It means to take your story and to point to Jesus and to go, this is the one that shows mercy and forgiveness. He is the one that's in control when all seems like it's in chaos. But I like how it just finishes by saying, Daniel, shut up the book. <laughs> shut it up, seal it. A lot of people are gonna run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And that's this, this uh, speaker giving Daniel a little hint from another prophet. Because Amos chapter eight, verses 11 to 12 says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not of bread, nor of thirst, but on hearing the words of the Lord. They will wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. So this speaker is gonna tell Daniel, it's gonna continue to be like that, where people are trying to find truth. But then he doesn't end it there. He says, but knowledge will increase. Knowledge of what? Understanding of what? Jesus. Because it wouldn't be long after that Jesus would show up on the scene. And what would John say? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is going to come on the scene and bring truth. Now, I like Daniel's response because, or sorry, I'm jumping ahead. So then verses five to 10, which we're gonna finish here in three minutes, <laughs> somehow, four minutes, five minutes, <laughs> 25 minutes, um, is he's gonna have a final vision where he's gonna see these two other kind of characters in white standing on each bank of a stream. And they're gonna speak to uh, one in the appearance of a man that's floating above this river of this stream. And they're gonna ask this question, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Now, isn't that the same question that you would have? And this is what the one says. He's going to raise both his hands as a guarantee of the truth, and he's going to say, it's for Moed, Moedim, Ketzi. <laughs> time, times, and half a time. Well, thank you. That's really clear. <laughs> 
and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. So he'll give a starting point for time, times, and half a time, that it's the shattering of the power. But here's the problem. In the actual text in the Hebrew, we don't know if it's saying the shattering of the shatterer, like the power of the shatterer, so like the Antichrist, or if it's the shattering of the holy people. So is this about the Antichrist, or is this about the people returning from exile, or is this about everything in chapter 11, or is this about the Maccabean revolt in 160, or is this about the fall of, of Israel in, in AD 70, or is this about World War II and the Holocaust, or is this about sometime in the future? Don't know. But in all of these, it's still asserting the same truth. God will intervene and deliver. Amen. These awful times, whether in Daniel's period, the times after, or what we're in, are not endless. They are limited. Look at verse eight. I think this is how we all respond. I heard, but I did not understand. Isn't that what you're gonna say about this sermon this weekend if someone asks you? Hey, what did Pastor Matt talk about? I heard and did not understand. <laughs> But you, he still asks, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he doesn't get any clarity. Verse nine says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. But it doesn't end there. You would think that, okay, there's the end of the book. No, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, we've heard about these, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Okay, the how long just got more confusing because in the book of Daniel, we've received 70 weeks in chapter nine. We've see, received 1,150 days in chapter eight. We heard half a week in chapter 927. We heard three and a half days of a week in verse seven, time two times and half a time. We heard 1,290 days in verse 11 and 1,335 days in verse 12. And to make it even more complicated, which calendar are they using? The Babylonian? The Essene calendar, the Greek calendar, I don't think it's about the numbers. The point of the numbers is not to allow you to do mathematical calculations. It's to bring assurance that God is aware. He has delimited how far things will go. And he has urged perseverance to the end. Now, if you're watching online, there's a chance in the next two minutes that the feed is going to stop. You can go back and watch the end of the message if I go over two more minutes. Just warning you. For those of you in the room, you have another 30. <laughs> I'm lying. That is not truth. That yeah. is not true. Um, but to just take this last piece here about the time, right, which we could talk about as a whole message. I think there's a passage that gives us some hope within this, and that's Habakkuk 2.3. We're talking about the final end. It says, if it tarries, wait for it, for it will surely come and it will not be late. That's a very Lord of the Rings, Gandalf type of statement. But what I like about it, and this is what a lot of scholars believe, is that it's actually saying, hey, the time will come, but that time may be drawn out. So Daniel may have heard some stuff and God was saying, here's when I plan to end it, but God can change. God can say, no, I wanna capture the hearts of more people. I want more people to understand. And so you might have an Antiochus and you might have a Hitler and you might have these different evil people and kingdoms that will come through, but God may continue to extend stuff so that more people come to understand him. So all of this might seem crazy, but it's meant to encourage us and not confuse us. And so here's my last pieces. 
This is a revelation from heaven by God himself. And he's reminding us that heavenly powers are shaping the events of history. And it's not about despair. It's not there to frighten us. It's about hope. And it's not about the historic last moment. It's about the meaning of all the historical moments together. It also reminds you that suffering is never meaningless. It purifies and it cleanses people. And it's a positive testing that shows the difference between the serious and the surface. And I think that's why it doesn't always make us comfortable to read these. Because when it really starts refining us to make us go, do you really understand God? That's hard. But it also helps us formulate how do we confront the issues that come up in our life? The chaos that might come in your individual life, in our state, in our nation, or in our world. And I hope that you've seen that it's not simple, it's layered, it's complicated. But the best part is that our God understands it and he's within it and that's what matters. And so let me finish with this last verse, Acts 1.6. Jesus raises from the dead. He's about to ascend and his disciples ask him, at this time, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel? Right? They still have the same question. Even with Jesus. Look at his response. It is not for you to know the times or the periods which the father has fixed by his own authority. <sighs> but you know what he goes on to say in Acts 1.8? but the spirit will come upon you and you will be witnesses. That is what matters, that you're gonna go and spread the news of Jesus Christ and his power, his death and his resurrection and that is going to change the world. And so Daniel 7, 18 becomes our final promise to this series. But the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and, and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your control in history. We thank you that you're a God we can know and understand. Lord, open our eyes, bring us near to you, help us to shine as lights to all people and to be witnesses of your power and your control in the chaos. We love you and we ask this all in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. amen.